He was blinded in that charge, both eyes shattered, stone splinters off a rock, but he carried on charging. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. children. Going to I could never not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Tim Rayson is the axe keeper of Her Majesty's Bodyguard of the Honourable Corps of Gentlemen at Arms. We had Tim on the podcast recently. To find out more about the history of the bodyguard and Tim's role, check out the bonus episode, Her Majesty's Bodyguard with Tim Rayson. Today's podcast tells the story of a few members of the bodyguard who received the Victoria Cross, the highest and most prestigious British military award. There are of course also the Victoria Cross Awards in New Zealand, Canada and Australia, and so far we've told three Australian VC stories on this podcast. But today we focus on VC stories from soldiers of the United Kingdom, the home of the VC. This conversation with Tim was recorded in St. James's Palace in London. Tim, welcome back to Life on the Line. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me back to your office as well. It's always a pleasure to be back in the palace. Yeah, well, it's a very nice place to be. And it's nice we can put aside our differences despite what's happening with the cricket at the moment. Of course, it's what cricket's all about, isn't it? <laughs> so, Tim, before we dive into the first story, how many members of the bodyguard in its history are recipients of the Victoria Cross? Well, there have been 12 recipients of the Victoria Cross who have served in the bodyguard. And they have been in the bodyguard from a period ranging from the Indian Mutiny of the 1857 period via uh, the Persian campaign, if anyone knew there was a Persian campaign, in the 1850s, South Africa, obviously, northern Nigeria, which is a real one far out there, and of course in the Great War and World War II. Definitely a couple of campaigns in there I did not know existed. It's what this job's all about. It's about finding out this sort of interesting stuff. And so we've talked ahead about which stories we'll cover today. Who are some of these Victoria Cross recipients we're discussing? So we're going to cover four pretty good ones. I mean, they're all good, but these are pretty good. Uh, the first one's going to be Captain Towers VC, followed by um, Henry Schofield, who is the disputed VC, which makes it an interesting story. John Campbell, the Tally Ho VC. And finally, uh, David Jameson, the Umbrella Man. Well, let's jump into our first story, which is that of Sir Ernest Beechcroft Beckwith Towles. What a name. Yep, that's uh, quite, quite a name. And uh, he was quite a person. He was commissioned into the Gordon Highlanders in 1885, served in the Northwest campaigns in India uh, on the frontier a couple of times before his battalion went to the Boer War in 1899. They were part of a large, larger force that was sent to relieve uh, the siege of Kimberley. And his VC is interesting because it's not only because of what happened to him and subsequently, but also it's a two-part VC. There are two parts of the citation for two separate actions, which is very unusual. I think the nearest uh, comparison you would get to that would be Johnson Bihari, who got his for about three or four separate things all rolled into one. And that's jumping way to this century as well. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. 
So that shows quite the gap there. Yeah. So anyway, Gordons uh, were part of the Highland Brigade and took part in the Battle of Magusfontein over the period 10th to 11th December 1899. That week of that battle was known, subsequently known as the Black Week, when the Boers defeated the British Army three times on alternate days. Not a good week for anyone, really. A bit like cricket. I was thinking that. <laughs> a lot of that was down to the tactics we use at the day, which are quite stereotyped. This battle, the Battle of Magusfontein, was no different from any of the others. We bombarded what we assumed were the Boer positions in the afternoon. The Highland Brigade then advanced, did a nice approach march with the view of delivering a dawn assault at close range. This was a standard tactic of the day. This is what we tried and invariably that week it failed every time they tried it. So the Highland Brigade comprised some 3,500 men in 30 companies aligned in 90 files and compressed into a column 45 yards wide and 160 yards long. So you can imagine a mass of men trying to get across the South African felt with all the thorns, ditches, dongers, and goodness knows what else. And the reason they had this very close formation is so they couldn't lose direction because not many people could read maps or use a compass. And those that could actually were some ways, someone sometimes geographically challenged as well, as we might say today. Off they set in the dark. It poured with rain all night, blowing a gale, and that delayed the speed of advance over the ground. And they eventually got to where, when the dawn was coming up, they were about a thousand yards short of the forming up point, the FUP. And so the brigade commander said, No, we will not deploy. We will carry forward until we're closer. Not a good idea. The Boers actually weren't on the side of the hill or on top of the hill, they're at the base of the hills in trenches. And so the troops remained closed up until they got to about 300 yards away when the Boers engaged them. What was essentially point blank range, 350 yards. Really close up, enclosing on entrenched, well defended enemy position. Yeah, not good. It's a bit like, I suppose, the Napoleonic Wars where you formed up in a column and assorted a thing in a column. So, uh, yeah, not a good plan. The result was in the first 10 minutes or so, something like 500 men became casualties because the bullets went through more than one of them at that sort of range. <laughs> Pretty messy stuff. Then they got stuck in the sun. They couldn't go forwards and they couldn't go back. So they stayed in the sun. And because they were in kilts, the backs of their legs all got very badly burnt. They stayed there for most of the day. And eventually the, the Boers decided to counterattack. The Seaforth Islanders were the ones who were counterattacked by the Boers initially. And as they were trying to withdraw, the Gordons were withdrawing at the same time, having come up during the day. And of course, trying to manoeuvre and reorient yourself while you're being engaged and counterattack is not an easy task to do. And so the, the troops didn't do very well. Some would say they broke and ran. Now, depending on which Highland battalion you're talking to, they tend to take a different view of all of that. And it's, uh, of course, dangerous talk to say the jocks would, you know, fled the battlefield. In the event, Colonel Downman, who commanded the Gordons, was mortally wounded. Towers tried to carry him back and couldn't because he wasn't big enough. So he stayed with him to support him. And eventually they got him out and help arrived in the shape of two NCOs, uh, Cullen Nelson and Corporal Hodgson, both who were awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal, which is a sort of VC minus. That is the first part of his citation. 120 odd years ago. Yeah. Amazing. And then it's four or five months later, part two. About five months later, the Gordons, having reformed and got more troops, were part of the column that was marching towards Pretoria at a place called Hutnek. It was necessary to clear the Boers away from a flat top copy or hill called Taba, and the Gordons were given the task to do that. Towles took 12 men with him and took up a position on top of Mount Taba. Now, you might say 12 men, not very many. That's a section and a bit, so not that good. 
While he was doing that, 150 burrs tried to climb up the other side of the hill. Now, neither side could see each other until they met at the top, where there's about 100 yards visibility at the top. And everyone went, oh. So uh, some of the burrs then carried on advancing and got within about 40 yards of Captain Towers and his party and called on him to surrender. Of course, him being a jock, it's not the sort of thing that jocks do. And so they engaged the enemy vigorously and they charged the enemy. They charged the burrs. That's 12 against 150. And he led the charge, obviously. He was blinded in that charge, both eyes shattered, stone splinters off a rock. But he carried on charging, maybe because he couldn't see where he was going. I suspect so keep going forwards, that will work. So a nearby rock is shot and those little shards, shrapnel all yeah. over, blind him. Took out both his eyes. Amazing. And he keeps going. And he keeps going. And his men keep going with him, which is the important part. Probably uh, saying a bit to the left, sir. Yes, yeah. So eventually, the Boers started to withdraw and then reinforcements arrived and they pushed the Boers off the hill. There is a story that a chap called Yevgeny Maximov was a Russian volunteer fighting with the Boers and he's the guy that blinded Towers by firing a shot into his eyes. So there's two sorts of stories there. There is a sketch that was appeared in the papers which actually shows him and the Russian having really seriously close quarter combat. There may be some truth attached to that. Who knows? Did Towers ever comment either way on that? No, not that, not that we're aware of anyway. He came back to England, obviously couldn't do any more in the, in the Boer War. Uh, Queen Victoria said uh, shed tears when pinning the declaration on him, feeling very sorry for him. And he was awarded a special wounds pension of £300 a year. Unusual, that sort of period of history. But he was now blind. And that's the important thing, he was blind. And therefore he had no military career. And Taos uh, was quite the advocate for the blind after that. Yes, he was. And that became his passion because there was no real... Safety net. There was no charity like we have today, which is Blind Veterans UK, which used to be known as St Dunstan's. That was his passion in life. However, he also joined the bodyguard in 1903 as a blind man. Blind bodyguard. As a blind bodyguard. Unusual. Some people would question well, the... Yeah. Um... yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in that time of our history, by then, we were purely a ceremonial bodyguard. As we have discussed before. Yeah. And so you might ask, well, how on earth did he do his duty? Um, and it's very simple. He was led to his post by what we call NF NFD1, Next for Duty 1, up First Reserve, parked where we had to stand, and he just stood there, did what he had to do, because most of it's done by rope anyway, so you can understand, you don't have to see to actually do most of it. Mm. It's only the moving bit, which is difficult. And then they'd go and collect him afterwards and take him away. Absolutely amazing. I mean, it's such an inspirational story that being blind does not stop you doing anything. This makes it a bit difficult, but it doesn't stop you. Oh, you have to adjust, but you can still push forward with the right amount of determination. Mm. Yeah. I understand he didn't just serve in the bodyguard, but when the First World War came around, he also contributed despite his blindness. Yeah, he, he was recalled to the colours, and he spent most of the Great War behind the front line, obviously not in the front line, but he was an excellent typist, and he could type Braille, and so he stayed in the hospitals typing letters for blinded soldiers to send home. Sounds like he was a man with a great deal of heart. I think he was. I think he was a true philanthropist in the true Victorian tradition of philanthropy. He was actually also present at the 400th anniversary parade of the bodyguard. And then subsequently he retired in 1938 because he fell over on duty. He retired before being sacked. So I've got his, we've got his resignation letter and it says, before you sack me, I'm resigning. <laughs> a man of honour. A man of honour. When did he pass away? Uh, he died in 1948. Before all of that, he did some other things as well. You can think a life lived to the full. He was the chairman of the British and Foreign Blind Association. In 1940, he gave his house to it as their first rehabilitation centre. 
because there wasn't anything before. He founded the British Wires for the Blind Fund in 1928, and he was a, a trustee of the Association for Promoting the General Welfare of the Blind, GWB, in short, now known as Clarity, so it still keeps going. And he gave them £500 as a grant to enable them to start making soap. That was something to keep blind employed. The idea for the wireless fund is really, uh, when you think back to that period of time, 1928, the wireless was not as available as you would get it today. It was an expensive toy to have. He was in hospital and bored. Two of his friends came in and rigged up a, a makeshift wireless set, earth to the radiator. That changed his life and a life that's already changed. And the fund was officially launched in Christmas Day 1929 by none other than Winston Churchill, who broadcast a live appeal for funds to buy the wireless sets. In those days, a reliable radio cost about two pounds. I think you probably had two noughts to that today something like that, maybe a bit more. And the fund volunteers would visit each recipient once a week and change the batteries. So they'd take the battery away for recharging and replace it with another one. What a marvellous organisation. One final anecdote, which I think is rather funny in a way, but underlines his determination to be an independent person. He was staying at a country house for dinner and the hostess decided to send her child up to his room to see if he needed any help to dress because it's white tie formal. Uh, in those days, the child found him seated in front of the mirror in the dressing table, tying his white tie unconcernedly by himself in the dark and said, no, thank you so much. I can manage very nicely. It's a remarkable life, but I think you also make your own luck with your own determination. Yeah, I think you do. I think you do. And you are in possession of a couple of things of Towsers. One of them I can see here now in your office. Yep, that's the, the helmet on the mannequin in the case over there. That came up for auction three years ago. And so we had to whip around and bought it. It's a marvellous thing to have. Um, and the uniform, okay, all the medals uh, are either replicas or copies, but the helmet is the real thing. Is that the helmet he fell over in? Probably, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to look for the dent later. <laughs> and the other thing we have, uh, well, I haven't got it here, it's out on loan at the moment, is his tie pin, his core tie pin. Well, Tim, Towels was, I think, our main deep dive story yeah. for today, but I want to hear your version of the after-action report, so to speak, of the other three Victoria Cross. Yeah, delighted. Well, the first one is a chap called Harry Scott, Henry Schofield was a gunner and he took part in the Battle of Colenso, which is the third battle of the Black Week. So having been done over twice, we're now committing to the same tactics and the same mistakes for the third engagement, uh, the Battle of Colenso. A lack of reconnaissance and intelligence meant that the, uh, the centre brigade who advanced in typical formation were stuck in the loop of the river Tequila. And there they stayed. The Boers weren't entrenched on the high ground. They're entrenched just across the river at the base of the hill. And so they escaped the bombardment. And having been there uh, a couple of times now, you think, how on earth did they miss that? But they did. Because the guns had been ordered forward to support the infantry, they were particularly exposed. And they unlimited, unlimited about 1,000 yards away from the Boers. Now, for a Boer with a Mauser rifle, that's easy shooting range because they're all marksmen. Uh, they used to shooting at long range, shoot game on the felt and stuff like that and surviving. They uh, were engaged by the infantry at the base of the hill. And funny old thing, uh, they soon ran out of ammunition, couldn't resupply and withdrew, but left the guns there. Sensible, yeah. Yeah, um, into a small uh, donga, which was behind the guns, so like a gully. And the wounded were all dragged in there as well. Now, about 800 yards further to the rear from that, so now talking about 900 yards, the gun teams were actually in a bigger gully. And they're all sitting there looking at seeing what's going on. And General Buller, who was the operational commander, came down the Donga with his ADCs, the three ADCs, 
one of whom was Schofield, uh, the other one was Congreve, and the third one was Freddie Roberts. Freddie Roberts is important because his father became Field Marshal Freddie Roberts and took command in South Africa. Um, and he was a VC holder as well, he got his at Kandahar. The general said, well, it'd be nice to get some of those guns back. Wouldn't it be a good idea? And of course, everyone said, oh, yes, of course. Uh, Better idea not yeah, to have left yeah. them there in the first place. That's but... right. So they called for volunteers to go forward with two gun teams of horses to actually uh, try and get two of the guns back. So Schofield's in charge of this operation. It's important to remember Schofield's part in this because it plays out into why this is the disputed VC. Schofield organises the gun teams with the other two ADCs and then gives the order to gallop for the guns. Splendid stuff. And they come lurching out of the, the donga, flat out, trying to do this 800-yard dash. After galloping about 400 yards, Freddie Roberts was shot, fell over, and Congreve fell wounded when they got to about 100 yards away from the guns. In all this time, it's trying to work out which guns to go for because obviously it's a semicircle of I think, six guns, six or eight guns. They decided to go for the two right-hand guns because they're the nearest and there aren't so many dead horses around. Having got there, they actually have to then jump off their horses, hook the guns on, turn the limbers around and gallop away again. What a suicide mission. All under fire. All under fire. Schofield was wounded six times in the action and they got back with two guns. Team drivers who were driving the horses, they all got the DCM. Roberts and Congreve and Corporal Nurse, who was the other lead rider, got the VC. Schofield was awarded the DSO and a mention in dispatches. But you had to get the mention in dispatches before you got the DSO. It was one of those conditions of getting the medal. You had to have that first at the front end of it. Now, when that became known back in the UK, and the citation, by the way, read, in recognition of services during the recent campaign in South Africa. Now, it's a very mealy mouth one-liner. The news got back here, the British public and the press, who had actually said this was Schofield's action, went up in arms about it. They all got, seriously got, there's a lot of bad press. These days it'd be a Twitter storm. Yeah, uh, yeah, Twitter storm, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah, something like that. Hashtag Schofield for VC. Buller, who actually had to recommend him and recommended all the others, said, I've differentiated my recommendations because I thought the VC required proof of initiative, something more, in fact, than mere obedience to orders. And he concluded that Schofield, though courageous, had merely followed orders. Going through the action, I don't think that's correct. I think it was the general's idea, but it wasn't an order. It's one of those, well, wouldn't it be nice uh, without giving a direct order, a suggestion. And so people said, right, OK, we'll go and do that. And he came up with the means of how to do it, yeah. put himself to do it, under fire, chose which guns to go for, yeah. and so on. Two years later, award of the DSO is cancelled and is awarded the Victoria Cross. So instead of getting a one-liner citation, the VC citation says that uh, when the detachment serving the guns of the 14th and 66th batteries of the Royal Field Artillery had all been killed, wounded or driven from by enemy fire at close range, Captain Schofield went out when the first attempt was made to extricate the guns and assisted in withdrawing the two that were saved. That is a VC citation. That is not a one-liner well, for services rendered. Uh, he became a member of the bodyguard in 1911. He was re-employed in the Great War, like quite a few of them others were. First on the remount commission in Canada, then America, and then he afterwards as commandant on the lines of communication of the BEF. And he retired from the army in 1918. Uh, and he served with the bodyguard until he died in 31, 1931. So that's a disputed VC. My reading is that the guy, he did what was required and more, and he was never given a direct order. It was just suggested that you would go and do this. Well, it sounds like the situation was rectified appropriately. Yeah. For John Campbell's story, we jump ahead to the First World War. Yeah, indeed we do. 
John Campbell, he owns the Tally Ho VC. Another interesting story. Very um, British uh, moniker. Very, very British. His father actually was a Coldstream Guards officer who was killed at Khabarni in the Zulu War and would have been awarded the VC posthumously. Except they didn't award VCs posthumously then. Otherwise, he would have been a VC. His father would have been a VC. He was commissioned into the Coldstream Guards in 1896, served in numerous actions in the South African War, was awarded the DSO and twice mentioned in dispatches. By 1916, he's a brevet or temporary lieutenant colonel commanding the 3rd Coldstream Guards. Now, his VC is all about the second phase of the Battle of the Somme. Um, this is the bit that starts in September in the advance, trying to get up onto the hills. And it's what I call the Battle of the Woods, Highwood, Delville Wood, Borloo Wood. His battalion was tasked to attack the village of Ginchy. The village of Ginchy is on the crest, or it's on the ridge line where uh, the second phase of the Battle of the Somme was aimed at. And the aim was to try and get the woods along the top there. Now, Ginchy was fortified, as all these villages were. And despite the bombardment, obviously, it didn't work. And the Guards Brigade, there were three battalions, advanced in extended line, as they did, in four waves. And they were decimated. By the time they got to the sunken, they didn't even get to the sunken road, which was their first objective. Most of the officers were killed uh, less than 100 yards from their own, from the frontline trench they'd set out from. The uh, second company of the 3rd Battalion managed to make it to the sunken road with four men and one officer. Despite all the slaughter that was going on, Vaughan Campbell, who was in the third line or wave, realised that the attack must be pressed home and they had to get the sunken road and they needed to clear it of enemy because that's where most of the machine guns were based. He then took out his hunting horn and toodle toodled on his hunting horn. Don't ask me to repeat to do the toodle toodle bit because I'm no good at doing that. And they rallied, the troops rallied and surged forward with the third line and the remains of the first and second line. And there couldn't have been many of them uh, by the sound of it. And they, uh, this was a really suicidal charge and it was successful. They captured or killed a large number of Germans and neutralised the four machine guns which had held them up. Now you might say it's four, four machine guns, what's that? But actually, you know, if they're properly sighted and dug in against advancing infantry in extended line, I mean, you just, it's an unequal contest. But to charge like that to the traditional hunting horn cry, the tally-ho, yeah. it's very black hat it goes forth. Or... You might say that, yes, you, you might say that. Well, in fact, you just did. I have said that, um, but having said that, it worked. It was courageous yeah. and it wasn't, as that show is a comedy and farcical, this yeah. is real history. It's something you would expect to see in that kind of comedy is what I'm saying, not as opposed to this actually happened. It's a, it's a tragic comedy. In, in a True. Way. It's a tragic comedy. The parallels are with the first day of the Somme where there are, were officers that did that sort of thing. There were units that kicked a football across the front line to try and get the football into the enemy trench. Didn't work out very well for anyone. That one didn't. But that's what they did to encourage the men to move forwards. Notwithstanding the heavy, the heavy casualties, the attack went on and it kept on going. And then they seized Green Trench, uh, which was the next trench along, and they cleared that out of enemy and then sort of got stuck. There was a bit of a dwell. Germans, of course, formed up for a counterattack as a usual thing and put a bloody great barrage into no man's land between their, what was their second line or third line trench and their support trench at the rear. But they had to get through that barrage. And so they did. They just pushed through, and he was the first man into the enemy trench at the other end. I can see how easily he qualifies for the Victoria yeah. Cross under yeah. those type of leadership. Now, interestingly, another little anecdote attached to this, this VC is uh, Captain Raymond Asquith, who is the son of the British Prime Minister, was in this action. And he was leading a company of the 3rd Grenadier Guards rather than the Coldstreams. He was shot in the chest 
and knowing that the wound was fatal, but he wanted to keep his men, you know, up and go, going and all the rest of it. He just calmly lit a cigarette and sat there. To maintain morale. Yeah, yeah stiff upper lip, writ large. Uh, Vaughan Campbell did so well, he then eventually ended up commanding a brigade and led them in a very successful attack in into the Hindenburg line. And he goes on to have quite a career. Yeah, and he, he stayed in the army until 1933, actually, so it's quite a long time. He then retired and joined the Honourable Corps in 1934. World War II, he joined the RFER, how, how strange that is, as an honorary flight lieutenant. And maybe he was just hunting around finding something to do. But he ended up commanding the 8th Battalion of the Gloucestershire Home Guard and then died in 1944. And he was aide-de-camp to King George V? He was an ADC to King George V, yeah. That ADC is part of being in the army. That's quite sad, though, that he dies in 1944. He sees his country back at war and doesn't see the end result. And who is our last story today, Tim? Well, the last story is the Umbrella Man. I do enjoy this one. We'll we'll discover at the end why he's the Umbrella Man, but uh, let's touch on the military part of his career first. Yeah. So David Jameson is his name, and he was the eldest son of uh, Sir Archibald, Jameson, KBE, MC. Who got the MC in the First World War? So there's a bit of a tradition of, of gallantry, maybe. And one thing no one's ever explored is why did these guys do what they did? That's the interesting part, is why did they do it? No one was podcasting back then no, to no. ask the questions. <laughs> that, that's another story for another day, I suspect. I suspect. So yes, because we're jumping ahead, I should say, for this action to the Second World War. Yeah, that's sorry. Yes, you're quite right. We're now, we're now World War II. And uh, he joined the 5th Norfolk's, which was a, a reserve regiment, TA Battalion, in 1939. And then transferred to the 7th Battalion when the TA was doubled in size and commissioned as a second lieutenant. Surprisingly, he had no real experience, but they still made him a second lieutenant. Needs must. So, age 19, when the Second World War breaks out, too young to go overseas, in stark contrast to what happened in World War I, when you have 15, 16 year old officers. But um, uh, those standards change as yes. needs require yeah. as well. So he didn't initially go out there with the battalion, but he followed them out later on. Most of the battalion were captured in June 1940 in the withdrawal during the fall of France, uh, and he managed to get back to the UK as he was far enough away from where the battalion was surrounded. They were reformed in uh, 1941, and he was then promoted to be a company commander of Seven Norfolks. There's an interesting little anecdote which precedes the Victoria Cross bit. Obviously, he landed in shortly after D-Day, and he then ran into his brother-in-law, a chap called John Tolomash, who was serving with the Coldstream Guards at that time, who invited him to join them for dinner. Jameson, who'd by this time been living in a trench, and of course been sort of swelly and dirty and sort of ish, and living on compo rations, was astounded to find, apparently, the regimental silver laid out on crisp white tablecloths, and said that, I know the Brigade of Guards fought like tigers, but that they should eat like lords so shortly after a decisive and hard-fought battle in the middle of Normandy amazed me. So he was sort of geared up to have dinner, but unfortunately he was told to move on, and so he missed having dinner. Was he told to move on for that commentary, or...? No, 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 no. His, his unit moved on. He oh, his unit moved on, OK. Yeah. We're now sort of coming into the, the, the meat of the bit. The River Orne was a major obstacle, and the Germans had destroyed all the bridges across the River Orne. But on the 6th of August, three battalions of infantry, which included the Norfolks, waded across the river. Now, you might say, well, wade across, couldn't you drive tanks? No, because the ground's not suitable. And they drove the enemy back and occupied a stretch of the far bank. This allowed the engineers to start building new bridges, although it was a bridge building under fire, under heavy shell and mortar fire. Now, the Orne at this point runs through a very deep, narrow valley with steep slopes on the home side, which is where we would be, but a very gentle slope on the far side, which is where the Germans are. So they've got the best of the terrain and they've got a forest to hide in to screen their counterattacks. There's a theme here with some of these VC stories today. Yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway, the following day, 12th Panzer Division decided to attack the bridgehead. And in spite of using uh, Tiger and Panther tanks, Tigers especially, they could not dislodge the British from their positions. There was bitter fighting, and much of it centred on the Norfolks, and in particular, Jameson's company. And it continued for 36 hours during which five enemy tanks and an armoured car were destroyed. Now, that's not many tanks unless you're in close quarter stuff and the tanks are racked up next to each other and you haven't really got a decent anti-tank weapon to take them out at point-blank range. The Norfolks had three tanks in direct support, three Churchill tanks. They were all knocked out one by one. So at one point, Jameson, who had been wounded by this time, the right eye and the left arm, and refused all efforts to offers to evacuate him, climbed out of his trench and stood up fully exposed to the German fire to direct the fire of the last surviving tank. Now, he said later, this isn't really heroic stuff. It had to be done because the telephone handset on the outside and a man on the ground to talk to the commander on the tank. However, the one that was left didn't work. So he had to climb up on the back of the tank and talk, shout through the hatch at the commander. And there's a very good painting of that. By this time, he was the only officer left. All the others had been wounded or killed. And at six foot five inches tall, you know, short guy, he was the tallest man in the regiment. And so he walked around in full view of the enemy, encouraging, reorganising the company, using his radio uh, to bring down artillery fire. So, you know, six foot five, you, you can't hide behind a bush, really. Oh, it's difficult. And so to stand up there in full view of the enemy and use the, the radio and all the rest of it is remarkable. In the end, after 36 hours of bitter fighting and seven counterattacks, or seven attacks on, on the company's position, the Germans withdrew. Part of the citation says that throughout the 36 hours of bitter and close fighting, and in spite of the pain of his wounds, Captain Jameson showed superb qualities of leadership and great personal bravery. There were times when the position appeared hopeless, but on each occasion it was restored by his coolness and determination. He personally was largely responsible for the holding of this important bridge over, over the River Orne. After the war, Jameson retired in 1948, and went to Australia on a visit. Whereabouts in Australia did he go to? Uh, well, he joined the, Aust the Australian Agricultural Company, which is a royal charter company, apparently. And he became a director of it from 1949 to 78, and then governor from 1951 to 75. During this period, he transformed the fortunes of the company, which controlled a chain of Australian sheep and cattle stations. There's more. So he was also a director of the UK branch of the Australian Mutual Providence Society, from 1963 to 89, and he's also their deputy chairman, a director of NatWest, and of Steetlis. I don't know who they are, I didn't bother to look them up, but there was enough Australian connections there. But in 1968, he joined the bodyguard, serving as a gentleman, then as clerk of the Czech and Adjutant, and finally the lieutenant from 1986 to 1990. Now, it's during this period, he was given the informal title of My Umbrella Man, and it was Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who gave him that Subriquet, and she was always keen that Jameson should escort her at garden parties since his height, being six foot five. You can imagine with a top hat on top, that makes him even bigger. And prestige as a VC holder enabled him to cut a swathe through the close knit crowd with his umbrella. He died in 2001. I'm sure he kept the Queen Mother dry to the end. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Well, Tim, that is a wonderful collection of heroic stories. It adds to the rich tapestry of history of the Honourable Corps of General No Arms and the Bodyguard. I mean, we discussed last time how, how it spans across the centuries, mm. but it's nice to have those tangible stories um, within our lifetime or a lifetime or two mm -hmm. this generation. And yeah. It must be really nice for yourself and your colleagues to have that richness behind you. Oh, it is. And the one piece of analysis which no one's ever done, uh, Lord Ashcroft's done it, but we haven't done for these VC winners, is actually to find out, try and work out why they did it. 
What yeah. drove them? Was it philanthropy? Was it sheer guts and anger? Was it, I've got to go and help someone? There are three VCs where they're all about charging into the enemy square to rescue someone who's come off his horse. It's very noble and it's hard to know for sure, yeah. but someone like, say, Taos, you can see what he goes on to do after mm. the war with the blind advocacy yeah. and so on. And you could argue that's derived from the condition he gets in combat or it could be something part of his inner character. We can't know, but we can thank all these men for their service and remember them. Absolutely, yeah. Tim, thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. For some Aussie Victoria Cross stories, you can hear two heroic tales from the recipients themselves. Listen to this year's Season 3 episode, number 43, Dan Kieran VC, and the Season 2 episode, number 36, Mark Donaldson VC. You can also listen to the Season 2 bonus episode, The Commando's Father, with Doug Baird, where Doug talks about the life, death, and legacy of his son, Cameron Baird, VC, MG. In Season 1, number 10, Eddie Robertson also talks about the late Cameron Baird. They were good friends and served together in the 2nd Commando Regiment. On my last podcast with Tim, we closed out the episode with a military march called The Nearest Guard, especially composed by Major Philip Shannon MBE for the 500th anniversary of the Honourable Corps on June 4th, 2009. In the recording, it was played by the Band of the Irish Guards. We're going to close out today's episode with the same tune. Find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and follow us on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Yeah.